Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Good to be back in the Word of God with you. I told you in our last study together when we started digging into the first five verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I warned you at that time that our last study and this message is really one great passage. Here's what you need to remember about this section of text. In the first five verses of chapter 2, the apostle Paul was setting the record straight about the end times. A false teaching had crept into the church, leading the men and women of the church of Thessalonica to believe that they had missed out on the rapture. That somehow it came to them that Paul himself was now teaching that the church would have to go through the tribulation. These dear brothers and sisters in the faith had been taught by Paul of just how terrible this time of judgment will be. And the very thought of facing seven years of tribulation brought fear into the hearts of those in this church. And if you understand from the word of God just how bad the tribulation will be when men stand up and teach that the church must go through the tribulation, well, that thought should bring fear if it were true. Paul did already mention the rise of the man of sin, the rise of the Antichrist. Paul had not yet taught about when the man of sin will be revealed, but now Paul is about to tell us when this will happen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so, until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Back in the 1800s, R.A. Torrey was preaching on the return of Christ before a group of nearly 300 people. As he was finishing the sermon, Dr. Torrey made the conclusion, it may be that before we arise in the morning or that before we sleep tonight, or it may be that before we have finished our lunch today, Or indeed, it may be that before I finish this sermon, we shall hear the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel announcing that he is here. Well, sure enough, at that exact moment, there was a crash of thunder and a blinding flash of lightning from the sky that filled the auditorium with bright white light. This group had just been listening to a message on the return of Christ, and their minds and their emotions were fixed on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once they heard the thunder and saw the light, thinking that the return of Christ had come, the people panicked. They stumbled from their seats and rushed to the doors. Everyone from the sanctuary fled, all except D.L. Moody's sister, who was sitting in the front with a big smile on her face. A little later on, when she was asked about it, when she was asked why she sat there with a smile on her face while everyone else was terrified, She testified that she had indeed thought that the Lord had come just like everyone else. The difference being, the thought of the return of Christ did not bring fear like it had done for all the rest. It brought to her overwhelming joy. 
I often read 1 John 2.28. Allow me to read it again. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. It does beg the question, should Christ return today or should Christ return tomorrow? What would your reaction be? Fear? Panic? Would you be ashamed? Or would you be filled with overwhelming joy at the thought of being reunited with your Savior? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I can only think of two possible reasons of why you would not rejoice at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. One, if you are living out of fellowship with the Lord, if you are not walking with the Lord when Christ returns for his church. Scripture is quite clear that such a man, such a woman will be ashamed. That at the moment Jesus himself returned, they were found to be out of fellowship with God the Son. And the second reason would be because you have been led astray about the doctrines of the end times. And the rapture of the church took you completely off guard. Which brings us to our text, because the only reason, the only reason these believers at Thessalonica had fear was because they had been led astray. And I think most Christians would be surprised if they met Paul teaching in a church today. Because Paul was a man that would not tolerate bad theology that would rob these precious believers of the blessed hope that we have in Christ. Look again at verse 6. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Work this text through with me. This isn't that hard to follow. But you need to pay close attention to the wording. Remember, nowhere did Paul say that the revealing of the man of sin, the Antichrist, would come before the tribulation. All that Paul stated back in verse 4 was that when the lost men and women of the world see the man of sin strike a covenant with the Jews as recorded in Daniel chapter 9, then they can know that the day of the Lord has indeed come upon the world. When the man of sin is revealed, the rapture has already taken place. And according to Scripture, a number of things are going to happen. Keep in mind, I am talking about after the rapture, but before the tribulation begins. The Word of God seems to indicate that there is a little bit of time before the tribulation kicks off. According to Ezekiel 38 and 39, after the rapture of the church, there will be the battle of Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38 teaches that a northern alliance will be formed to invade Israel. God is going to supernaturally intervene, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39. God is going to allow the western alliance led by the Antichrist to defeat the northern alliance. Now, the Antichrist will take credit for it. To the Jewish people, the Antichrist is going to look like a hero because with his Western alliance, he will take credit for defeating the enemies of Israel coming from the north. Now, this will set him up with the Jews. This will pave the way for the Antichrist to sign the peace treaty with Israel. And when he does, the tribulation begins. Now, I'm often asked if I believe the Antichrist is alive right now. Now, I think that is the wrong question. Satan is not omniscient. Satan does not know when Christ is coming back for his church. And so I believe that Satan always has someone ready in every generation that has stood on the stage of world events that is ready to take advantage of the moment in history when all the believers in Christ are taken from the earth. It could have been Hitler. It could have been Mussolini. It could have been any major world leader in the last 2,000 years. I know this. Satan has a man right now that stands ready to bring death and suffering to this world if the rapture were to happen today. Walk through this text with me and capture the flow of thought. In verse 4, Paul began to address the man of sin. Paul taught that he will sit in the temple 
proclaiming to be God. Verse 5 was simply a detour. Paul reminded the church that he had taught them about this. And then in verse 6, Paul picks up right where he left off in verse 4 to address when the man of sin will be revealed. Now, they had been taught about this subject, and now Paul tells them, now you know what is restraining. The church at Thessalonica knew who or what is restraining. But at this point of the text, all we know is that something or someone is holding back the Antichrist. In verse 7, we will look at who this is. But for now, Paul just tells us that something or someone is holding the Antichrist back in order for the Antichrist to be revealed at the proper time. Now, this goes to the very idea that we have so much to be thankful for. Passages like this teach us of the things that we are not even aware of, that we should be praising and thanking our Heavenly Father for. Certainly, we do see wickedness and evil in the world today, but it pales in comparison to what this world would look like if God himself was not actively working in the world and holding back the plans of Satan. Ever since Adam, ever since Job, Men and women blame God when something bad happens. It's always said, how could a loving God allow bad things to happen? The Word of God teaches us that the response should be that we are thankful that God is holding back the forces of darkness as much as He is. Because at any given time, it could be so much worse. Praise God that He is so much more powerful than Satan could ever be. There is a coming time that is just right, and at that time, the man of sin will be revealed. And praise the Lord that we can look at passages like this and understand that even the timing of the rise of the Antichrist is under God's control. Take a look at verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Paul further explains why it is that this restraint of the Antichrist is even needed. It is because the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. This explained to the church why they were already suffering for their faith. Satan is active. Satan is at work. And since he is not allowed at this time to bring the Antichrist into power, he does what he can and works to promote sin and rebellion against the Lord. Satan has his own plans for a kingdom, and part of his goal is to get things as ready as possible for the day when he is allowed to unleash the Antichrist. Now, remember, a mystery in the New Testament is something that we could never understand on our own, but has now been revealed in the Word of God. Paul is speaking here of the mystery of lawlessness. And the idea behind this is the work of Satan to overthrow the laws of God and to establish his own rule in this world. Don't miss what Paul is teaching us. There is a purpose in the plan of Satan for all the rebellion that goes on in the world against the Lord. Satan is trying to do the same thing that he tried to do among the angels. He is trying to establish his own rule and lead a rebellion against God. This is the plan. This is the reason why there's so much rebellion today in the world. Satan has a plan and a purpose for all the chaos and immorality in the world. It is all driving toward the day of the Antichrist. Here comes an important statement in verse 7. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Understanding this statement unlocks verse 8, and it teaches us when the man of sin in verse 3 will be revealed. There is a time limit to how long the man of sin will be held back from coming onto the scene, and the restraining of the man of sin will only continue until someone is taken out of the way. 
In verse 6, the teaching was that someone or something was restraining. But now, verse 7 reveals it is not something, it is someone. Now, this takes us part of the way home to understanding this text. Someone is restraining the rebellion in this world right now. And so now the big question comes, who is the one who now restrains? It amazes me how many different suggestions there are out there for who this would be. The way to answer this question is to ask another question. The question needs to be, what person, all by himself, is able to hold back the efforts of both Satan and his demons? And if that is the question, there really is only one answer. No human being qualifies. And I don't think any one single angel is able to hold back Satan and all his demons. The only one capable of holding back Satan is God himself. Now, listen closely. If we say that God is the one restraining, one objection that is often given is that the book of Revelation does make it clear that God will still be working in the affairs of the world and God will still be working in the affairs of men during the reign of the Antichrist. Just how is it that God himself will be taken out of the way? Well, the wording of the text that Paul used actually gives us the answer. If you look at the end of verse 7, in both the King James and the New King James, the verse ends with the phrase, taken out of the way, is actually that the restrainer will be out of the midst. The restrainer will be out of the midst. So using some basic logic here, then we also know that whoever the restrainer is right now is in the midst. And this points us to the Holy Spirit, who now indwells the saints of Christ. When Christ calls the church to himself, the Holy Spirit will be out of the midst. The Spirit of God is omnipresent, and so we know that the Spirit of God will still be present during the tribulation. But remember what Jesus told us in John chapter 14, where he said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit of God will absolutely continue to be present in the world, but the Church of Jesus Christ has a special relationship with the Spirit of God that the world simply cannot have. The Spirit is present in the world, but we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. And so in that sense, when the Church is taken up to be with Christ, the Spirit of God will be out of the midst. But we also must keep in mind the teaching in this verse that the Spirit of God uses us to have a restraining influence on the depravity of fallen man that is present in this world. In verse 7, the Holy Spirit is out of the midst because the church is taken out of the way. Then take a look at verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Follow the flow of thought in verses 7 and 8. The Spirit of God being taken out of the midst takes place before the revealing of the lawless one. Verse 7 is the rapture, and then in verse 8, the Antichrist is revealed after, meaning just based on these two verses, the rapture of the church must be before the tribulation. Verse 8 takes us forward in time. It covers the entire seven-year career of the Antichrist, from the moment he signs the peace treaty with Israel to the end of the tribulation and the second coming. Of Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, to Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14 speaks directly to the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Zechariah 14, pick it up with verse 1. 
Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Verses 1 and 2 are summing up for the nation of Israel what is going to happen to them during the day of the Lord. Verses 3 and 4 are the return of the Lord at the end of the tribulation. This is his second coming. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Now you can go on and read the rest of the details later here in chapter 14, but it teaches us starting down in verse 9 about Christ establishing his kingdom. And in that day, the Lord will be king over all the earth. Skip ahead to Acts 1. Remember the context. This is after the resurrection. Christ is about to return to heaven. Take a look at Acts 1, starting in verse 9, referring to Christ. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Notice the teaching, Jesus will return in like manner. Then notice verse 12, this teaches us where the Lord was with the disciples when this happened. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. Jesus left from the Mount of Olives and Jesus will return at the second coming according to Zechariah 14 to the Mount of Olives. Head to one more passage, this time turning to Revelation 19. Once again, this is the second coming of Christ and as we go through this, notice how decisive this battle will be. Revelation 19, we start with verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him who was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke this world into existence. That is power. And the teaching here in verse 15 is that the Lord will strike down the nations with a sharp sword that comes from his mouth, meaning Christ can strike down his enemies by his spoken word. And this is the same teaching we see back in our text in 2 Thessalonians. Read it again, verse 8, back in 2 Thessalonians 2. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Take comfort that all the forces of darkness will be gathered together to do battle with the Lord. But this battle is as good as done because there is only one true God. 
The teaching of the Old Testament from Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11 is that shortly before the end of the tribulation, the allies of the Antichrist will be fighting one another. There will be a world war taking place, but they will unite, according to Revelation 16:14, to do battle with the Lord. Now, the end of the battle is found in Matthew 24. Listen to verse 30 of Matthew 24. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The lawless one is another obvious reference to the Antichrist. He is the same as the man of sin. His very nature of who he is is a man who is completely opposed to the holiness of God. His nature is sin and rebellion before the Lord. The false Christ, the Antichrist, will be taken out with one blow by the simple breath of Christ. Revelation 19 makes it clear that the Antichrist, as well as the false prophet, will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the idea in this passage is not of eternal destruction, but of eternal torment and ruin. And the idea spoken of is the absolute power that comes from Christ. All the efforts of the Antichrist to rule this world during this time, all the efforts of the Antichrist to be worshipped by men, will come to an end when Jesus Christ returns at the end of the tribulation. Those of the world who think they can mock the Lord, those of the world who think they can rebel against God, will be in for a rude awakening when Christ returns to judge this world. Starting with verse 9, Paul jumps back to talk a little bit more about the Antichrist. Take a look at what he tells the church. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Even though most of the world will be led to believe that the Antichrist is God, Paul makes it known that his power comes from Satan. Notice this phrase that Paul uses, that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. This man is not Satan, but the way that this man will operate will be in full agreement with Satan. His power will come from Satan, and this satanic power will manifest itself with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. The deception in this world will intensify during the tribulation. The power producing these miracles will come from Satan. The signs point to the idea that these miracles will be intended to lead the people of the world astray, making them believe that the Antichrist is someone that he is not. The lying wonders are meant to impress the men and women of the world. The lying wonders will be meant to bring the world to worship the Antichrist. Words used, the power, the signs, and the wonders are some of the same words used in the Word of God to refer to the miracles of Christ and the miracles that were done by God after Pentecost in his church. Satan is the master counterfeiter. His goal will be to counterfeit the ministry of the living Christ. His goal for the Antichrist will be to authenticate his claim to be God, and this is how he's going to do it. This is how he will lead the people astray. And I will also add, this is exactly how Satan is leading people astray right now within the charismatic movement. These miracles will not be of God, which is why Paul referred to them as lying wonders, because they will be cheap counterfeits from the pits of hell. Will the Antichrist be able to do things that no man or no woman can do? Yes, absolutely. He will have the power to perform miracles, but his power is going to be from Satan and not of God. The Antichrist is going to have some help, isn't he? 
Revelation 13 teaches us that the Antichrist will have the help of the false prophet, whose main goal will be to have the people of the world worship the Antichrist. Speaking of the false prophet, Revelation 13 records, he performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth. All the attention, all the worship of men will be on the lawless one. He will pass himself off as God and will be worshipped as God. Satan's desire is for men to worship the Antichrist instead of the living God. Satan is trying to rob God of the worship that belongs to him. And notice the first part of verse 10 in our text. Paul adds to this, and with all unrighteous deception. The idea is that the Antichrist will come up with every means of deception that he can, every way that he can, in his rebellion, he will try to pawn himself off as something that he is not. And notice just who it is that will be led astray. Paul records, among those who perish. Those who will believe the deception of the lawless one, those who will follow the crowds and believe the lie that the Antichrist puts forth, they are on the path to ruin. They will one day face eternal torment. And the very idea of some of the wording here indicates that these people are so deceived they will have bought into the lie of the Antichrist, meaning they will not have the truth of Jesus Christ in them. In other words, during the tribulation, you're going to have a clear choice. Either you will take the mark of the beast and worship the Antichrist, or you will have faith in Jesus Christ, looking forward to the coming kingdom of the Lord. Take another look at what Paul teaches us at the very end of verse 10. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. This is the unredeemed during the tribulation. They will not be saved because they will fail to receive the love of the truth. They will fail to receive or accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's on them, not on God. Their eternal fate is the just and deserved punishment because they will deliberately choose to reject the offer from God for salvation. They will refuse. They will make a definite choice to reject the Lord. They will choose not to obey the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who seek and love truth will find eternal redemption in Christ. Loving the truth of the gospel means believing the gospel of Christ. But those who have no love for the truth will remain ignorant of the gift offered to them until it's much too late. Their indifference towards the gospel makes them guilty before a holy God. Take a look at our last two verses, starting in verse 11, we read, And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Make sure that you follow the progression carefully in this passage. Some would say that it's cruel for God to send them a strong delusion. But pay attention to how the verse starts out, for this reason. These men and women will have already rejected Christ and will already stand dead and condemned in their sins. God is a holy God. God alone is the sovereign judge of men. And God will not sit back and fail to judge men for their rebellion against him. Sin must be punished. These men and women will have already rejected the truth. They will have already chosen their eternal path, and this decision will bring them even further away from the truth of Christ. What Paul is telling us is that since they choose to follow the lies and deception of this world, God allows them to follow that path and subjects them to further delusion. Even right now, think of the teaching of Romans 1. The lost suppress the truth. Their hearts are darkened. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. 
If men and women want to exchange the truth of God for a lie, God allows them as part of his judgment against them. He gives them over to the immorality they have chosen. It's a hard truth, but the fact remains that some of the lost of this world have already made their choice, and they are literally the walking dead because God has given them over to their sin. This is why we read in John 3.18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Understand that God allows men and women, not just in the tribulation, but even now, to live out their choice of rejecting him, to follow their sin. In our text, speaking of these men and women during the tribulation, Paul records the purpose for the delusion is so that they should believe the lie. Now, the way that Paul records this leads us to the understanding that there will be a point in time when these men and women will make an active choice to believe the lie. The lie spoken of ties us back to verse 4, the lie that the Antichrist is God and that the Antichrist should be worshipped by men. The purpose for this, Paul records in verse 12, is that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. By worshipping the Antichrist, the men and women of the world will demonstrate the rejection of Christ. Their condemnation will come upon them because instead of responding to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will delight and take pleasures in the wicked unrighteousness of the world. These people love evil, and when the man of sin steps on the scene, he will find the men and women of the world ready and eager to worship him. In those days, evil will be called good, and good will be called evil. And certainly we see this coming true, as homosexuality has now become a virtue among men, instead of what it truly is, an abomination to the Lord. Rejecting God's truth will always lead a person down the path to deception and immorality. The further a person allows himself to continue in sin, the more entrenched he becomes and the more hardened his heart. And at each point, every person chooses, making God's judgment fair and just. Those of you that have read our book on the end times should know this story. And with all the safety checks of modern flight, the following story seems too far-fetched to even possibly be true. But yet it is. The story was reported and confirmed by CBS, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and many others. On September the 3rd, 1987, a man by the name of Henry Dempsey was the captain of the Eastern Express commuter flight from Maine to Boston. Flying at an altitude of about 4,000 feet, Captain Dempsey thought he had heard an unusual noise, which seemed to be coming from the rear of this 15-passenger turboprop plane. He turned the controls over to a second-in-command and went back to check things out because there was no passengers on the plane. No one else should have been back there, so he went back to see what the noise was. Dempsey made it to the aircraft's tail section when the plane hit some turbulence. The jolt of the plane threw Dempsey against the rear door of the aircraft, but this is when he discovered where the noise was coming from. Because apparently before takeoff, the rear door of the plane had not been properly secured. So as Dempsey stumbled against the door, it opened. The stairs on this door of the plane deployed, and Dempsey was sucked out while they were going over the Atlantic Ocean. Now, while all this was happening in the back of the plane, in the front, on the instrument panel, a little red light, an emergency light, indicating an open door in the rear of the plane, started to flash. The co-pilot immediately radioed the nearest airport and requested permission to make an emergency landing. 
and he asked that helicopters be sent out to make a search or a recovery for his friend, Captain Dempsey. It was the proper thing to do. Proper, but not necessary. Because as the plane's door came open and the stairs flipped down, as he was being sucked out of the aircraft, Captain Dempsey somehow had the presence of mind to grab onto something, anything. Somehow he managed to grab onto the railing of the stairway. He caught that rail and he held on. It's not an exaggeration to say that he held on to that rail for dear life. With only his legs still in the plane, lying upside down on the last step, Dempsey held on. Dempsey held on as the plane flew at 180 miles an hour. He continued to hold on when the plane started its descent. And with his face less than 12 inches away from the concrete runway, Dempsey held on when the plane's wheels made contact with the runway. Dempsey held on when the plane came to a halt. Dempsey held on after the rescue workers arrived. Dempsey continued to hold on even though they told him he was safe. And when they said, you can let go, pilot Dempsey found that he couldn't because, yes, that's right, Dempsey still held on. It actually took rescue workers more than 15 minutes to pry his hands from that rail. Pilot Dempsey held on. He had no other choice because nothing else was going to save him. I do hope that each and every one of us is holding on to the Word of God with a sense of urgency in these last days. The rebellion against the Lord, the mystery of lawlessness, is already at work. The deception by Satan in the world is leading many astray. It could get a little bumpy. It could get a little scary. Expect the persecution to come our way from the lost and from those with the religion of men. But no matter what happens, hold on. Hold on to that precious faith in Christ. Hold on to his word. Embrace your faith in Christ and keep looking up, knowing that your redemption draws near. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 